自動でお風呂を沸かします。Welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with James Harkin, Andy Murray, Anna Chazinski, and special guest Tim Minchin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Tim. Okay, my fact is that Bulgaria has an agency that shoots rockets to kill hail. Uh, to kill it. <laughs> to kill it. Well, to minimise it. It's okay. uh, preemptive strikes, uh, hail strikes. Um, so I thought this, all this weather manipulation technology was bollocks, but apparently it's not. So, so Bulgaria has lots of um, agrarian Bulgarian land, and they grow stuff, and uh, and hail damages crops a lot, and because of its geography and its Variable landscape. There's lots of hail, and so they use seeding techniques to. Well, there are various ways you can lower hailstones by seeding. So, do you want to do you want to know about yeah, it? It's really it's super boring. <laughs> yeah, I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll try and make it more boring than it actually is. <laughs> so, so you you basically they, they discovered in 1946 or something that if you put um, dry ice, um, solid carbon dioxide into clouds, um, you can Increase precipitation basically, and later they found out that um, something silver iodide and potassium iodide also do. There's various techniques, and you can drop them from a plane or shoot them up from a rocket, which is what the Bulgarians do. But in terms of um, fighting too much hail, you the the main technique is basically that you make you sh- you shoot these chemicals up. It changes the chemical structure of the stuff within the cloud, and it actually makes more. Small hailstones that compete for the available water.、Oh, okay. So by the time they hit the ground, they're no longer hailstones because they started too small.、Oh. I think I've misunderstood the fact because I thought they were <laughs> shooting rockets at falling hail. I assumed it well, was like there was an attack、mm. happening, and they were like like when you shoot a missile at a plane. Yeah, to take like, it a, out game of space like、yeah. a game of space invaders. Like a game of space invaders. That would be amazing, and it, with enough people and enough tiny rockets, that would <laughs> probably work. But.、Um, Or it's like、um, you know those meteor disaster movies. You you basically got one massive hailstone coming towards Earth. <laughs>、yes. So you need Bruce、yeah. Willis and exactly and that guy who sings "Love in an Elevator"、yeah. or, or his daughter.、Um, <laughs> do you know the、um, that Armageddon fact about、oh, yeah. the fact that NASA? Sh- so they don't do it officially, but they、uh, unofficially show people who are being recruited for NASA the, the movie of Armageddon, and the job is to spot as many inaccuracies as possible. Oh, good! I think the, the it's over a hundred, isn't it? Yeah, I think, I think so. It's over two hundred. Icon、yeah. of poor space facts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So that's actually a thing that they sit so down. So I can't get the a... song in my head. Don't wanna close my eyes. Don't want. Yeah. <laughs> that's the guy. Sleep, cause I miss you, baby. <laughs> oh, so good. That's not inaccurate. That's perfect. <laughs> did, I sp- did I spot that? It was the only bit they didn't quibble how with. That, how good the song is. <laughs> But there's there's there's,、uh, there's sort of dodgy technology. There's things called hail cannons. So so in medieval times, they used to ring church bells and fire cannons into the sky,、yeah. and to try and stop hail. Oh wow! But they have things that are still in modern times called、um, hail cannons, which basically. It, Make an explosion at the bottom of look, what looks like a la- large loud hailer, ironically, and they they send up、uh, a sound wave, and it's meant to distribute 
hail in the and it doesn't and they essentially don't work do they but they're they're still marketed everywhere if you look up kind of wine growers tips and stuff in Europe people will try to sell those things and they are like gigantic (laughs) ice cream cones a bit aren't they are they the same ones yeah they look like huge cones what you were saying about bell ringing they used to do that to get rid of thunder didn't they as well oh yeah so they would send people up a massive tower with a bell in it to ring the bell to get rid of the thunder but then electrocuted yeah because you're next to a massive Mm. metal thing really high (laughs) up yeah yeah I was reading just the other day about a, a miracle in the Middle Ages, which was where the church bells started to ring by themselves because they, they were so happy, so windy that a particular <laughs> <laughs> they were really thrilled at a particular religious event or celebration. So they started. They rang by themselves. Yeah, oh, that's nice. The, um, do you know what my favourite thing about this fact is that the person who um, discovered that silver iodide works as well or better than um, uh, solid carbon dioxide in cloud seeding was a guy called Bernard Vonnegut. Right. Any uh, relation? In 1946. <laughs> and I just, which is so weird. And it's Kurt Vonnegut's brother. Get out. And, yeah. and the weird thing is whenever I think of cloud seeding, I think of Cat's Cradle. I think of Ice Nine. Oh, yeah. Yes. Because Cat's Cradle is all about an isotope that freezes liquid on contact. And it's so that's obviously so, what he was reading and thinking about. His big brother was because he was a science nerd, but I didn't know it. That's extraordinary. It's one of my favorite. It's books. a great that's book. That's an incredible book. Yeah, yeah. it's a so scary I'm so book. So glad hmm. for this hail fan. Wow. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so the thing that you were saying earlier about cloud seeding, yeah. not thinking that I had no idea that worked, and apparently it does. I was reading that the uh, the uh, the Beijing Olympics. For their opening ceremony, they made sure that they had no clouds by doing literally that, firing rockets into the sky in order to knock them out. And is it proper science? Well, well some, mm. th- there are all sorts of question marks over it. Okay. Sometimes it works. And so it might have been a coincidence that there just was no clouds. Yeah, it's always hard to tell, basically, because you yeah. can't say it definitely would have rained. There's no control group. Yeah. No, and, it's, and because uh, the data set of any weather is chaotic not climate but weather is chaotic you can you can always draw inference where there was an inference you know yeah. right. but but there's no way I mean the Chinese government of course would say like we got rid of the cloud <laughs> <laughs> and that's very in character bless them but um, <laughs> but we uh, but but it's not pseudoscience because you can measure impact but the impact is never from 100 to 0 mm. it's um it's percentages of of manipulation. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Have you read the um, accounts of people going in and doing cloud seeding? No. It's so hardcore. People in planes, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The people go in the planes. So the, a, journal, a Bloomberg journalist went up with a couple of cloud seeders um, in who were doing cloud seeding in Bangalore because India has drought problems. So they were trying to solve that by generating a bit of rain and it's so what you do is you go under the hugest storm cloud you can find and there's a big updraft in the middle of it and you fly underneath that in your little plane and you let yourself get sucked up and i think you get sucked up you get sucked up at 800 feet per minute and so this journalist was just like i was in the back behind them just vomiting the whole time (laughs) then what then what so then they've got to fly into clouds are you they've got all these rockets on the wings so they've got i think he had eight rockets on each wing and it fires uh the um substances off into the clouds and then wow. allows them to seed but it sounds absolutely terrifying wow sounds yeah. terrifying. he said he couldn't lift his hands off his lap because you're going up so fast there was a thing about so this when the usa was starting to get involved in a really serious way because they they tried it over uh 
Lao during the Vietnam War, but also the USA had a national hail research experiment in the 70s, and it lasted yeah. for four years. And I think they closed it down because they hadn't got the technology right. But when they were doing it, some farmers were very angry about the idea because they thought that cloud seeding would reduce the rainfall and yeah. damage their crops the other way. And some of them fired shots at aircraft, which they thought were doing cloud seeding. Right. <laughs> so yeah. adding to the risk yeah. of being a seeder. <laughs> yeah. Do you know loud, this isn't very cheerful at all, but um, I haven't remembered it since I went there about 10 years ago, is the most bombed country per square mm. kilometre mm. in the world because of yeah. during the Vietnam War. It's, it's, oh, so yeah. weird. it's good to have uh, a record of some description. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's very proud of it. Yeah, it's on all their yeah. posters. The only other thing is they have all those jars, don't they? They have the they plane have of jars. Plane of jars. Yeah. Yes. Full of unexplained jars. Yeah. We yeah. think they might have been. They might have been for funeral uses, yeah, for putting bodies in, maybe, or, or they might have been for storing grain. It's just this, it's hundreds and hundreds of massive human-sized jars on a plane. Wow, fantastic! We don't know why they're jars on a plane. Yeah. <laughs> Coming this summer. Do you know the biggest hailstone? Uh, no, twenty ten. Um, a hailstone larger than a bowling ball fell on Vivian during an exceptional hailstorm. <laughs> wow. Uh, Vivian is a town in South Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> I was going to say, you didn't even get a surname, James. It's really disrespectful. She's like Madonna. The, yeah. the, the, the hailstone obliterated her surname on her name tag. <laughs> wow. Um, um, there was... Have you heard about the guy who had weird blue hail fall in his garden in 2012? No. Did he think it was urine from a plane or something? He didn't, because my urine isn't blue, James. Is yours? (laughs) I am going to have to see a doctor. (laughs) George George III had blue urine, didn't he? Did he? he? Porphyria. Okay, so this wasn't George III's urine being catapulted (laughs) out of a plane. Uh, But this was a guy called Steve Hornsby. He lived in Bournemouth, and it was in the middle of a hailstorm, and these jelly-like three-centimetre diameter balls, blue balls, fell in his garden. I think about a dozen of them fell in his garden, and he said they were like squishy, jellyish eggs. And they don't know what they were... Um, one of the researchers said that uh, it might have been a bird's egg, like an undeveloped oh, bird's right. egg. And she said, uh, bird's eggs have been implicated in previous strange goo incidents. <laughs> and apparently because birds hold their eggs in their claws when they're flying. But if they're hit by hail, then they let go of them in a panic. And Whoa. so this guy just had 12... Birds hold their eggs in their claws when they're flying? Apparently. Really? I did not That's the that. premise of my movie. The whole first <laughs> scene is a bird flying with an egg in its claws. So I hope is that's actually? right. Yeah. That's yeah. a good spoiler, thanks. We've got, got a scoop think, there. Think, <laughs> it's only the beginning. Do you think critics will walk out if it's factually <laughs> inaccurate <laughs> right at the beginning? <laughs> um, I, I, I can just picture a little kid next door to that guy in Bournemouth just throwing blue jelly over yeah. him, <laughs> watching the dude's face and laughing. Watching the journalist show up, yeah. thinking, have I taken this too far? <laughs> Um, I have a couple of things on Bulgaria. Did anyone look into Bulgaria? No, but do it. Okay. Uh, First off, I tried to find a famous Bulgarian, which is quite hard. There isn't really any. Christo Stoichkov. Okay, so we've got one. Any lead on one? Um, I've got Simeon Saxakoba Gotha. (laughs) Okay, so who's your your football player? player, Yeah. Yeah, and yours? Mine was the Prime Minister of Bulgaria until 2005. But here's the cool thing. He was, he is one of the only two who had blue urine. Who had blue urine. <laughs> um, he's one of the only two people who's currently alive who was a head of state during the Second World War. Oh, wow. Whoa. Yeah. He was the Tsar of Bulgaria in 1943 when he was six years old. Then the oh, Soviets invaded and he was exiled. And then he stayed alive and stayed alive for a long time and then won an election in his native country okay. in 2001. Oh, wow. That's How so cool is that? Cool. That is cool. Yeah. Mm. 
<laughs> Just so what, imagine the six-year-old. I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you've got no no Bulgarians. No, I do. I, I should I should just qualify and say internationally famous Bulgarians. Sure. Uh, the, but it turns out that the grandparents of Mark Zuckerberg are Bulgarian, are they? and he's named after his Bulgarian grandfather, Marco. So he's yeah. he's they're trying to claim him as Bulgarian. Also, I found one very good politician from Bulgaria who got fired in 2010 because he was playing too much Farmville while they were oh. trying to. <laughs> so Farmville's a game on a on an app, um, and he was fired and he was dismissed. And they added in his dismissal that he would now have more time to tend to his virtual farm <laughs> with his with his hail cannons. I thought they'd send him, down, <laughs> yeah. send him down to be minister for agriculture or something. <laughs> yeah, you would think. And when when he was when he was dismissed, he came back and he said uh, that he basically tried to explain himself and tried to say that he wasn't the worst. He said he'd only reached level forty, well as Daniela Zelokova, had the councillor from the rightest Democrats of the strong Bulgarian party, was already at level forty six. <laughs> <laughs> so he was furious, outraged. <laughs> okay, it's time for fact number two, and that is Chizinski. My fact this week is that we judge music more on how it looks than how it sounds. Okay. What? What am I talking about? Uh, <laughs> so this is an experiment that was done by researchers at UCL in 2013. And it was actually a sequence of seven experiments and it involved over 800 participants. And some of them are musical experts, so were professional classical music judges. And some of them were just amateurs, just plebs like you and me. And they... I take exception to that, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> Except you, James. We're different types of plebs. Uh, yep. Um, and they got them to listen to recordings of people who'd been entered into classical music competitions and to tell the participants who they thought had won these competitions. And when the participants just heard a recording of the recitals, they had no better chance than just random chance at knowing who'd won the contest. And when they were watching the person performing at the same time as listening to them performing, they also had no better chance than just what would be random chance. But if you muted the visuals and they just watched the person on the piano doing the classical music recital, suddenly uh, the chance of them guessing who'd won the competition went way up and they got like they, they were more than twice as likely to Why do we think that that's the case? At the start of the study, like, 96% of the professionals and 88% of the amateurs said that they would judge almost entirely on sound. But actually, they think that we use visual cues, so we don't quite realise it. But when they say what they appreciate in the music, they'll say something like passion. And actually, they're getting passion out of the way that a performer's moving. Or, mm. And they're, they're thinking, oh, I'm really enjoying hearing this piece. I'm really appreciating the uh, mm. nuances in the music. But actually, they're just enjoying watching someone look like they're passionate. Mm. I just thought it was really interesting. That Yeah, that is interesting. So whenever I'm seeing a band play, the, the one that's coming to mind is Mumford & Sons. There's a guy on the keyboards, right? If I ever see in a festival, and he goes for it, and he's like, he's rocking on it, but it, you know he's just playing a G. Like, it's just a G <laughs> over and over. And it's like, why are you, why are you putting... But if and that was keyboard, muted... So it, it's not an acoustic instrument, so yeah. you can't get more out yeah, of it exactly. by hitting it harder or throwing you but it's, but but it's the same watching a pianist play a, a beautiful acoustic piano and the, you'll you'll watch some classical pianist sort of ease their body in and their wrist down and they'll just sort of place their finger on the key and most of the cue you're getting from that the reason that sounds like a beautiful note is because of the approach yeah and and you could go you could get a robot to go and it would sound 
exactly the same. Well, this is mm. the thing. This is why they have um, blind auditions for orchestras these days because they yes. notice that oh, they were an agenda bias. Exactly is insane. Yeah, and until the seventies or the nineties, about five percent of an orchestra was with female musicians, which is obviously statistically surprising. Well, but uh, the of course yeah. the assumption was ah well you know their brains are different and they're they're physically not as capable and so they can't cut it yeah and everyone just took that as given oh well you know women yeah. aren't as good as as men at music mm. and, and then they started blind. blinding the auditions yeah and it's guess what it's like 50 <laughs> 50 <laughs> nothing to do with it but they, they had some where they the 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 they had blind auditions and still many more men were being chosen for the orchestra than women they when they worked out a possible oh. explanation which was that uh the women were going in wearing high heels to the blind so audition Clip-clop, you heard the sound of their feet, and that might have been subconsciously affecting people. Fools, they should have known. I mean, women are idiots, I'm sorry. They shouldn't have worn (laughs) high heels. (laughs) That was the point point I was trying to make there, Anna, yes, is that women are idiots, great. Yeah, it's it's pretty depressing. This reminds me, this is a digression, but of... um, Blinding instrument tests because have you guys yeah. discussed this? No, uh, no, I don't about think we have. The, uh, about the Stradivarius effect, you know, the no. the knowledge that an instrument is. I guess it is very related. The knowledge yeah. that an instrument is worth a million quid changes not only the audience's appreciation but the musician. So uh, a, a first chair or a soloist, classical violinist, will, you know, get on lease or buy if they're very lucky. Uh, a Stradivarius mm. worth a million bucks and they'll play it and they'll, everyone will swear black and blue that that it sounds better but if you blinding this is quite hard because the wood smells different and mm. it feels different and stuff but if you control as much as you can for those variables putting you know blocking their noses and 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 just get the players to play it and hear it there's, they can't pick a oh, Stradivarius yeah. from a thousand dollar Chinese. And this violin. has been true for about two hundred years. Yeah. I think they've been doing these studies, yeah. and it always shows. But then no every one can single tell. year you get another thing saying, "Oh, it's because of the wood. It's a special kind they of this, try, or a special try. kind of that." Yeah. Do you know what's valid though? I mean, I was thinking about this today with um, disease and psychosomatic illness and stuff. That if you have someone with a, one of these uh, umbrella diagnoses, like um, chronic fatigue, or um, they'll, they'll there'll be this outrage if anyone suggests there's a psychological element to their disease. But that, that assumes a dichotomy between neurology and physiology that is something that increasingly we, we realise is not true. So the yeah. fact that an, a disease has a psychological element or a neurological element, it, the psychological and neurological are kind of indistinct. If, if it does have a psychological element, it doesn't mean you're not still yeah. sick. It's just you're not necessarily sick. You, they, these people wanted desperately to be a, a tick or a, mm. or a or some kind of pathogen, but but they, but if you tr- tell them it's neurological, they're like, no, it's not all in my head, and it's like it doesn't matter. It's all in your head in the end. Yeah. Pain and yeah. sickness, yeah. and it's all interpretation. Like, and so with this violin thing, like maybe it doesn't matter that it's bollocks because the musician feels more passionate about their music when they play it and maybe it changes their body language and changes the audience experience and the fact that it's psychological is fine that's part of our experience yeah yeah it is it's uh it's it's good stuff we should keep lying that's well let's let's relabel all violins (laughs) let's just do it if we sell them all for two hundred thousand pounds if we do it it (laughs) (laughs) you missed the point if we we do it and we cover it up 200 years from now people will be enjoying music much more they'll say there was this guy stradivari he made 
thousands and thousands <laughs> and thousands By of hand. hand. <laughs> He's still making them. It's amazing. amazing. <laughs> Quick yeah. thing about cognitive bias. Okay. which this is kind of about, yeah. but um, well, which this is about, which is um, how we convince ourselves of things that aren't true, uh, is that uh, everyone, almost everyone thinks they're above average. And if you present people with most skills and you do studies on how good they think they are at skills and then you test how good they are at skills, people will think they're better than average at most mm. things. So I think some things are uh, particularly high. So there was a study in 1977, which is quite famous, where 94% of professors said they were above average in relation to their peers. So obviously this is people, mm-hmm. we, we are so good at convincing ourselves of certain things. That yeah. It's Have with driving a lot driving, as well, isn't it? I think and is so there a gender thing there? I bet men are worse. In driving, I think actually it was gender equal because I was expecting that as well yeah. and I was disappointed. I bet men are better. I bet I'm above average at thinking I'm better than <laughs> you at things. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know about that? You guys discussed the Dunning-Kruger effect. But there's uh, also a correlation between how bad you are. The, the gap between... It's slightly a misinterpreted thing, but the, the gap between uh, how good you are and how good you think you are increases as you get worse at a thing. Yeah. Oh, it's wow. It's amazing. Um, so... so it's sort of like the less you know about the thing, the less you know how bad you are at the thing. Yeah. So people... And, and, and the thing that people make a mistake with this data, which is very interesting data, um, is they think, oh, those people are so dumb, they don't know how dumb they are. But it's actually all of us. In, in all of us, we have things with the Dunning-Kruger effect. The, the, the point is, it's the things we're shit at that we don't know we're so shit at. You've basically written a song about that, haven't you? Have the first I? song of Matilda is basically like that. Oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. The is idea that some... ev- everyone thinks their kid is uh, above average. Yeah. yeah. Specialness yeah, the... is de rigueur, above average is average, go figure. <laughs> it's one of my best rhymes. <laughs> it's a children's musical. <laughs> You've got to go <laughs> see it. <laughs> I will. Yeah. Come on, you people. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it's time to move on to fact number three, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that the BFG's dream powder also helps against constipation. Oh, bless. Mm, Is that an edited chapter? Uh, So this is not in the book. This is um, a thing that I read by Ophelia Dahl, who was Roald Dahl's daughter, and she was talking about her childhood. And before uh, Roald Dahl wrote the BFG, he kind of had this idea already and his kids couldn't sleep and he was like, oh, you know what? There's a kind of a dream powder that people blow into your bedroom and it gives you good dreams, but it also helps for anything from maths problems to constipation. Okay, oh, and then the kids yeah. kind of went to sleep, and then he ran outside, got his um, got his ladder, put it up against the wall, ran up, put a bamboo pole into their bedroom, and pretended to blow in sleep. Wow! Out. And then from there, that's where the idea from the book came. So was sweet. there a, supposedly they knew that it yeah. wasn't that it was him, but they pretended to him afterwards. And was there a lot of constipation in the doll family? <laughs> Not after no. this. <laughs> they all immediately shut themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> they did once get suspicious, I think. Um, so they said, "How how are we supposed to know that this is real, Daddy?" And so they went downstairs and confronted him, and he said, "How dare you question my um, truthfulness?" And then the next day, they said they woke up and opened the curtains, and they saw the letters B F G burned into their lawn. And he loved his lawn so much, and apparently he was very angry about this, and that proved to them that the B F G existed. Oh, so they were very easily convinced. Ah. Yeah. He sounds like a great a great dad. Yeah. yeah. I was reading about the first movie of the BFG, the animation, and the original voice was meant to be Spike Milligan, and 
I'm very upset that it's not because I look at I look at the BFG's face and I see Spike Milligan now. Right. Yeah. yeah. And he when he showed up to the audition, uh, they said he had to go home and shave. I don't know why because it was a voice job. <laughs> well, <laughs> Dahl hated beards. Yeah. Oh, really? Dahl hated beards. Yeah. yeah. Was he a pogonophobe? Yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. What? Lots That's of, what is he, that? Oh, is that the twits? Yeah. That was the massive yeah, he hates, thing. He hates, ah. the, he hates Mr. Twit. He, I mean, that's re- real. I, I've talked to Lissy about that. He really didn't like beards. Yeah, I think Ooh. he wrote an essay in the Times that only came out quite recently, saying they're a hairy smoke screen behind which people hide. Um, and yeah, yeah, he really loathed them. But is this true about beards that this is difficult? Because he said that it was a, a bad a representation of male vanity and no man should be vain. But I would have thought that it's much more effort to shave. But he said, I think it must take at least twice as long to wash thoroughly a face that is matted with bristly vegetation so that no dirt or food remains among the hairs than simply to shave. That, but I didn't realise beards required that level of that cleaning. That does sound phobic, doesn't it? I'm yeah. that, I mean, I've never considered washing my oh, do you have beard. to clean like comb food out of your beard every night before you go to sleep um no should i <laughs> well, I quite so. a dull well, well, that it, does sound phobic though doesn't it yeah, sounds yeah, like yeah. a sort of yeah, yeah. fantasy version of what a beard might be like yeah, yeah. or maybe sort of just sort of thinking of big dostoevsky and beards and yeah yeah i don't know so um, uh, he had supposedly this cabinet of curiosities, sort of odd things in his shed, and I imagine you'd have seen all of these. Yeah, I, I was actually one of the last people to see it before it moved. Wow. And now it's in the museum in, in Great Missenden. Oh. Yeah. And he had some of his spine in a jar. Yeah. Because um, he had a terrible spinal injury when he a plane crash in the Libyan desert oh, yeah. during the Second World War. And he also had, um, he, he had a drawer on one of his filing cabinets, and the handle of it was a steel bit of steel which had been put into his pelvis during oh. an unsuccessful hip replacement. Wow. And so he said, well, I'll just turn that into a handle for a filing cabinet. That's great. He so was, cool. medically, he was extremely unlucky, I think, in terms of people around him and oh, himself, wasn't he? Sad. So he lost his daughter and that obviously mm. just destroyed him. But then um, Theo got, you know, his son got hit by a car in New York when mm. he was a little tiny infant in a, in a pram. But he invented this um, shunt. He got a model maker from down the road and a doctor who turned out bizarrely after I'd written Matilda, I found out as a friend of my granddad's. Wow. Um, wow. My mum was reading his biography and went, Dave, this is your father's friend. <laughs> uh, so that was very exciting when mum got to meet Lissy. But um, yeah, he, he just felt that um, he, he should be able to fix stuff, you know. And mm. it's such an interesting brain, this darkness and light and the pragmatic versus the fantastical, you know. I, I just... Yeah. Mm. Absolutely intriguing guy. And it did... Uh, you know, you hear about people patenting things and being a bit wacky, but his invention genuinely did save thousands and thousands yeah, of lives, didn't it? Yeah, it lasted about a year or something. It was superseded quite quickly, but it was huge. I think it was, yeah, very effective 3, 3, in 3,000 children, I think, mm. had it fitted. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. And that is, you know, charity saves a whole lot more, and it's pretty yeah. incredible. Yeah. Um, you know he had no teeth. Oh, really? Did he not? He had them all out in his 20s. It would have been a spy because he was a spy briefly, or his sort of mili- military yeah. attaché in Washington in the war. But he would have been a spy with no teeth. At that awesome time, <laughs> that's a great book, isn't it? The Spy with No Teeth. Yeah. <laughs> it's on Ian Fleming's backup list. Yeah. <laughs> Doctor No Teeth. <laughs> they were friends, actually, weren't they? 
Well done, Fleming Ian Fleming. They worked together a fair bit. Or they knew each other at least and had mutual respect for each other. And they both sort of worked for MI5 together at that time. Well, and they worked on two movies as well. Yes, and they worked on films together afterwards. Yeah. Right. So oh, yeah. did he do The Spy Who... No, he did You Only, you only Live, Live Twice. And he also did Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Yeah. Yes. Dahl, this is a, a thing I found out that I had no idea, is that um, he was buried with a power saw. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really? As, not that it was used to dig the grave. I mean, he was literally, he's got a power... In his coffin with him... Or sort of in the, I'm not sure whether, maybe it's a tomb, but he was buried with his snooker cues, yes. uh, mm. some burgundy, chocolates, HB pencils, and a power saw. We need to great. find that tomb and <laughs> yeah. get that burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> we are low on wine. <laughs> so he used he, to write for Playboy, didn't he? He did, yeah. Um, wrote Playboy stories. In fact, Hugh Hefner um, did a thing where in one of the editions of Playboy, he included 10 golden tickets. And if you got a golden ticket in the Playboy uh, copy, you then got to go to the Playboy mansion <laughs> yeah. to an X-rated Wonderland. Oh, that's Chocolate factory. Yeah. <laughs> Nine-year-old has the most traumatic day of his life. <laughs> uh, I, this is just one tiny fact about dreaming, um, but because the BFG is about dreams. Am I right? Yeah. yeah. yeah sure. um, so there was a study done in Germany about nightmares and the five most common themes for nightmares are falling, being chased, being paralyzed, the death of family or friends and being late. <laughs> Which is oh, yeah. like... How, if people, is that up there with all those other traumatic things that could possibly ever happen to you? It's not knowing your lines. That's what I get. Really? Mm. Oh, yeah. Having to go on, not knowing my lines. Often Shakespeare. Having right. to go on mm. on to, in, in a Shakespeare and not knowing my lines. Would that be worse because a lot of people are just going to know all the lines anyway? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Shouting it out. Yeah. <laughs> that one or not to me! <laughs> 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 Um, uh, I have a fact about constipation. Oh, as well. yeah. but, so oh. this is from the you know the Guardian used to do notes and queries, and yeah. it would, uh, they, you sometimes find the very old columns online. Basically, they have one question that a load of people answer. Yeah. Have they stopped doing it now? Uh, I'm not sure, but the, a lot of them look archived now, yeah, basically. Yeah. But they've got so there was a thing about old books, right? And a couple of people wrote in, and one person wrote in saying. The father of a friend of mine used to find that breathing in the atmosphere of a well-stocked second-hand bookshop, the mustier the better, was a certain cure for his acute constipation. That now, sounds like the very <laughs> Aoki phenomenon. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah. there's, a, there's a phenomenon we've talked about on this podcast, where, which is this woman, I think Mariko Aoki, where, yeah, she had, she, where she was overwhelmed by the urge to have a poo when she was in a bookshop. I wonder... And there's another letter, who's, another person second down wrote... Um, I first became aware of this little-known side effect of my interest in old books some years ago and have been plagued by it ever since. <laughs> I'm reassured to know there are other sufferers. I think we might have cracked the phenomenon. Well, you do get a lot of um, kind of, not bacteria, but fungal spores, don't you, in, in old books? <laughs> so maybe oh, it's, it speeds like up that. the process. It might do. Yeah, it must do. I thought it might be associative. So these people uh, are people uh, who read uh, their old books on the loo <laughs> and, their, and their brain goes, oh, old book. And that's an amazing yeah. theory can I just there's one cure for constipation that yep. I like that I didn't know about um, which is the violet ray device and so I think this was kind of uh, sort of invented by Tesla so it's an electrical device which was used to cure a whole bunch of stuff as, la as late as the 1930s and it basically used electrotherapy to and you put 
put the instrument that puts an electric current through whatever bit of your body is ailing you put it on that and it cures it and you were supposed to put it into your rectum and you p- saw an electric current up there and it relieves constipation it feels like true? it would work it does they use really. it in the 1930s if you look at newspaper adverts it's all over it the violet ray device they use violet right. electric kind of um, butt plugs to get semen from rhinos I happen to know oh yeah yeah oh. is rhino one of your online <laughs> names <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it's time for a final fact of the show, and that is Andrew Hunter-Murray. My fact is that Britain has only one performing circus raccoon. (laughs) (laughs) So I found this fact in The Spectator. It's from the House of Commons papers. Um, And um, there there are not many animals performing in circuses left in the UK, Mm -hmm. and elephants and big cats have both been banned from British circuses. There are now two travelling circuses. For turning up drunk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It does make it sound like they've misbehaved. <laughs> they can't come to a circus drunk, mate. There's raccoons on stage trying to do their job. So there's the Circus Mondeo, uh, who have horses, camels, llamas, mules, donkeys, reindeer, and one zebra. Okay. And there's Peter's Jolly Circus, uh, which I, and I phoned up both of these circuses. Did you? Yeah, yes. and I had, okay. a, I had a chat with them, and Peter's Jolly Circus has... Horses, donkeys, ponies, a camel, two zebras, llamas, a parrot, and Reggie the raccoon. Uh, I spoke to the guy who keeps it. Well, he does a lot of stuff. Um, Firstly, he did an advert with Gary Lineker. (laughs) A crisp advert, was it? I imagine it was a crisp advert. Um, um, Reggie salted. Very good. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. As you are. Um, so I thought you guys might ask, what does Reggie do? And I asked uh, the, the keeper, and he said, he basically, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, he basically walks around the ring fence and goes up on a ramp onto a platform and goes in and out of poles like dogs do for those agility things and then comes back down. <laughs> ah. So maybe that's why there's only one. Okay. Fantastic. But the keeper was at pains to point out he's not the UK's only performing raccoon right. because there's a lady who did Britain's Got Talent with a with raccoon. raccoon. With a raccoon. So um, raccoons yeah. have uh, public toilets. Don't they? They have their own what? latrine area, raccoons. Really? And ah. we don't know why they do it, whether it's from a sense of cleanliness or one the article I was reading said maybe for communication purposes, but they have a the group of raccoons will designate a toilet place and they all go and shit there and that's that's where they do that. Well raccoon droppings are very poisonous. They have little nematode worms in them that can kill you. Really? Yeah, and wow. I think there's like even no cure or something. That's why I was wondering why quite a lot of the warnings are very alarmist about raccoon latrines and how bad it is if you find them in your garden and you shouldn't touch them. But that probably explains that. Yeah. Mm. Oh. Yeah. The government of the Bahamas um, were protecting the Bahaman raccoon. Uh, and then someone did some DNA test and found it was exactly the same as a North American common raccoon. And so overnight they went from pr- protecting them to setting up an eradication <laughs> program. That's so good. <laughs> it's wow. such a horrible news to wake up to is yeah. those raccoons <laughs> in their four-poster beds. Darling, all the door. Darling what's wrong? <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a few facts about circus things. Right. Okay. Um, so there's, I found an unbelievably good book called Beastly London by Hannah Velton. It's so good. It's a history of almost every animal that's ever been in London and it's incredible. Um, so just a few circus shows that happened. Um, there was, uh, The Singing Mouse, which appeared in 1843 at some private rooms in Regent Street. Apparently it could warble incessantly for a quarter of an hour. Wow. Yep. Even better on mute. (laughs) 
<laughs> and then a few years later there was a rival singing mouse which sat up off the strand which were very near at the moment at a hairdresser's and tickets were sixpence but if you got a haircut it was free to see the mouse it's weird enough that a mouse can sing but singing cut hair at the same time <laughs> that's incredible I just remembered I went to a circus museum in Florida I can't remember it's somewhere in Florida I can't remember what it is and then they had a load of weird people there who did weird things and one of them went downstairs on his head and that was his whole act. Oh, that's good. He was just like... Without using his hands? Without using his hands, he would just kind of put, get on the top step with his head and then, I guess, use his neck muscles or something. And one of the first ever circus performers rode a horse standing on his head. Was he an ass, one of Astley's lot? Or? I think he was pretty Astley, so it wasn't oh, actually circus because Philip Astley's the guy who invented the circus. But he did okay. a lot of like weird kind of... Astley did incredible horse riding, yeah. There was a guy called Daniel Wildman who was so good. 1772, this is. He could ride a horse while standing upright, pretty good, with a mask of bees on his face. <laughs> Awesome. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to see him riding a bee with a mask of horses <laughs> on his face. So this is just one sentence about him. Um, he, he rides standing up on the saddle with the bridle in his mouth and by firing a pistol makes one part of the bees mount over the table and the other part swarm in the air and return to their proper places. So he was doing tricks, kind of show jumping with the bees while riding a horse. But apparently he held the queen bee in his hand uh, so yeah. to, to sort of get them to follow along. Yeah. Jeepers, wow. that sounds That's amazing. That sounds ridiculous sort of level of imagination to work on the scale of a horse and the scale of a bee at the same time. Yeah. Have you guys heard of the Dog's Toilet Club? <laughs> Have we heard of the Dog's <laughs> Toilet Club? I reckon I've accidentally yeah. stumbled into it. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? It was an establishment on Bond Street in the early 20th century. Uh, unfortunately, it's not quite as good as it sounds. It was where you could buy nice things for dogs, oh, like oh. toilette oh, in the sense of uh, like toilet oh, water. But you could, and it was incredibly lavish because it was on Bond Street. So you could get scented baths or hankies for your dog. Or jeweled collars or fur coats. When was that? Uh, early 20th century. That's weird that people have been doing that for so long. Yeah. So that Dog's Toilet Club is also in the, the Beastly London mm. book. I cannot recommend it enough. Um, one of my favourite circus facts of recent times is that John Major's dad, former Prime Minister of England, uh, John Major, his dad was in the circus. And by all accounts, I'm going to actually properly read about him. Sounds like an extraordinary guy. Uh, Tom Major. And... The idea that everyone says is fact, although I don't think David Bowie actually said it, is that he used to see the poster of Tom Major. And that was Major Tom. And that was Major Tom. And that was in Brixton. And that was where Bowie was at the time. The song originally went, this is ground control to Tom Major. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, this can't. Father of John Major, (laughs) you will be the Prime Minister. Okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, we can all be found on Twitter. I'm on at Schreiberland. James. At Eggshaped. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. Tim. At Tim Minchin. And Chazinski. Podcast.qi.com. Yep, or you can go to at QI Podcast, which is where all of us exist as one unit, uh, including Tim now. And uh, Or go to no such thing as a fish.com, which is our website, and we have all of our previous episodes up there. We will be back again next week with another episode. Goodbye. <laughs>